When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone's star. I don't understand. Tell him who you are. He is the one and only Nicolas Cage. With the kind of career Cage has had, especially recently, you can be forgiven for rolling your eyes at the plot of his latest, Pig, which has the actor on a revenge-fueled quest for his missing truffle pig. But there's a reason we're reviewing it this week on the show. It's really good. Yeah, it is. We'll also get to the third film in our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon, the director's breakthrough film in the West, Chungking Express. That and more. All the leaves are brown. Yes, I was hoping you'd sing. Ahead on film spotting, said nobody ever. Welcome to film spotting. This is all just now flooding back to me, Josh. I had otherwise completely forgotten it until our producer Sam put a few bullet points here for us to consider. We've not only done over the years top five movie scores, that was before your time. Top five movie soundtracks, that was also before your time. But we did our top five classic rock moments in movies. And maybe we don't think about the mamas and the papas when we think classic rock. But Stephen Hyden, the great music critic and writer, when he joined us for that top five classic rock moments in movies, he schooled us with a great choice. He put California Dreaming from Juan Carwise Chunking Express on his list. I mean, if it's not one of the best uses of a rock song, it's one of the most uses of a rock song in a film. I mean, it gets a lot of play. It does. This week on the show, we continue our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon with 1994's Chungking Express. That's later in the show. Plus, Josh will give us his review of M. Night Shyamalan's Old. It's a doozy, Adam. The, mo- the movie, not my review. My review is brilliant as, as always, uh-huh. but yeah. First, though, let's get to that truffle-hunting pig. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. There's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. Buy yourself a new pig. What are you thinking? I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever served. You live your life for them, and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. Imagine this pitch for a film, Adam. A burly recluse lives in the forest outside of Portland, searching for truffles with his beloved pig, Truffles he then sells to the city's trendiest restaurants. It's a peaceful, humble, if earthy, life. Until his cabin is invaded one night, he's attacked, and the pig is stolen. 
The next morning, he heads back to the city, where his past is slowly revealed as he scours the restaurant scene, searching for the animal. Sounds intriguing. No, I could get into a smaller scale film around that concept. Now add this detail. Rob, the main character, is played by Nicolas Cage. Suddenly, this project is a very different animal. If you're not chuckling, you're surely smiling a little bit there in the corner of your mouth. But should we react this way? This is the most interesting question to me when it comes to Pig, the feature debut of writer-director Michael Sarnowski. Surely Sarnowski knew he was playing with fire by casting Cage, an immense talent who nonetheless has also become known and memed as the wild-eyed star of even wilder movies. Think the Wicker Man remake or something like Mom and Dad. Pig is a movie walking a tightrope then. As long as it keeps its balance and Cage keeps his, it's a thoughtful, even spiritual meditation on loneliness, grief, revenge. But if it slips, if Cage slips, the audience is going to be laughing. Did Pig make it across the wire for you, Adam? Did it register as a serious drama or as a juicy piece of Cage camp? Maybe Sarnowski managed something even rarer, a backflip on that tightrope, and it's a dexterous demonstration of both. I cannot wait to hear how this movie played for you. Well, I watch every movie as a serious drama, even comedies. So that's <laughs> okay, just, well, that's interesting approach. <laughs> I took Pig as seriously as you can take a movie that answers a question absolutely no one has asked. What do you get if you cross John Wick with First Cow? Mm, yes, good touchdowns. That, that was my sense watching this film. And there's a few references to other movies we could probably make as well. I definitely get your question because it is Cage and he does have that reputation and because this movie in a lot of ways is absurd for reasons that relate to world building that I certainly do not want to spoil and will not spoil. I went into this movie without knowing anything except Nicolas Cage and truffle hunting pig. I'm sure I knew about the revenge-fueled part as well, though even that is somewhat arguable. He's not so much actually interested in revenge. He just wants to find the pig. Yeah. But save for one truly incredible Cajun roar. <laughs> Do you know the one I'm talking about? When he, he steals, he the, steals bike? the bike from yeah. somebody's porch and just gets in some guy's face and yells at him, which uh-huh. for the record did make me laugh out loud. I thought it was hilarious, and I also thought it was brilliant. He is as subdued and still and serious as he's ever been. And Sarnowski's carefully crafted filmmaking matches Cage's solemnity. The production design is somehow grungily meticulous. (laughs) The shots are all very neatly composed. They have that kind of, you want to take the frame off the screen and put it on your wall quality Mm -hmm. to most of them. The camera movement is deliberate and it's never showy, but it's never mundane either. As I recall the beginning of this film, the opening five to 10 minutes, everything up to the pig napping is all tableaus and tripod shots. And it suggests a straightforwardness to Rob's life, a structure and a routine that really revolves around his relationship with this animal. And then right before his door is broken down 
and he's beaten, the camera work switches to handheld. And even just that slight deviation as he gets up to go to the door sets up the violent burst that follows. And you notice how Sarnowski really uses the handheld camera throughout the film, including in a scene, here's one of those references, in a scene that feels somehow ripped straight out of Fight Club. So (laughs) weird. And other moments where everything seems to go out of balance, where that harmony that maybe he's achieved or is struggling to achieve does get lost. And it does seem to be, especially in scenes where there is some kind of violence to it. So his past and his present are coming together, they're converging, and that's reflected in those visual choices. Despite the absurdity that infuses everything, though it's in the service of expressing something plain but profound, that for better or worse, I think is said in the movie and and functions as the movie's tagline. At one point, a character says, we don't get a lot of things to really care about. But I think before that, Josh, Cage's character says, we don't have to care. And we may talk about that a little bit more. I think one could watch Pig and hear those lines said and the earnestness with which Cage says them and scoff at it. Or you could find it subtly devastating and necessarily affirming the way I did. What about you? Yeah, I think for me, the movie does cross the tightrope, though there are a few moments where it slips beyond the the roar after stealing the bike. And I don't know that I'm necessarily holding that entirely against it. I think it's more of where that subdued but very meticulous and admirable filmmaking and Cage's performance get out of step with each other a little bit. Or maybe Sarnowski wants this wild card in his film. Um, but I, I think of, you know, just the choice they make that after he is attacked— Rob, he, I mean, it's pretty severe. Like mm-hmm. he is beaten. His face is all bloody and a great choice of camera use there too. It's almost like it's the camera is fixed on Rob's body yes. when they burst through the door. So the whole camera slides over and hits the ground just as he does. Really striking, especially as you know, in comparison to those opening tableaus we did enjoy, which are very first cow, um, you know, Kelly Reichert style detail of the natural world. Um, but the choice that he is all beat up, all bloody, and they're, he, they're just going to leave him looking like that through the rest of the movie. Um, he gets beat up more. Maybe we won't spoil that. And so he's walking through this movie looking like he's kind of wearing like these grungy, like they used to be white long underwear. He Every time he walks into a room with that blood and the long underwear, he looks like Santa in the offseason who had just gotten into a knife fight with the elves. I mean, everybody stops and looks at this guy. And so that's a choice. Like they are, they are definitely leaning into the cage persona there, despite the overall somberness of this movie. And even how about the one touch where (laughs) he's looking like this and someone asks him in the middle of the conversation, he just pauses and says, I'm sorry, do you need medical attention? Right. And cages choice to just, ever so slowly turn his head toward the man. like And just this, like, it, the thing Cage can do is he can make stillness theatrical still. And, and that's what he does there. And so overall, this is a very 
there's a lot of muted physicality to this performance um, in the way that you describe. He's a deliberate character, but moves slowly. It's almost like he doesn't want to disturb anyone with his presence. But there are touches like that where only Cage would play that turn of the head that way, you know? And so there is, I think there's more of a push and pull, or at least there was for me between um, this potentially campy Cage that Sarnowski knows is is what he's working with and wants that to be in the movie. Um, and so you can kind of debate, like, does it take you out of the film? The chuckle that we both had at the bike scene, totally intended, right? That's meant to be a laugh beat. But some of the other ones I do wonder about. But I'm with you on Cage's performance being, you know, one of his better ones in recent years for those that slowness he brings to it. And really the way I think he makes those lines work. The one yeah. that you quoted, that's that's a Rob line. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. And it's kind of like a it's very tender. It's it's not pronounced. It's it's almost just kind of like he mumbles it out, but it still hits. It's a it's kind of a there are a couple moments with this character where you get it's like a come to cage moment. You're like, there it is. Like that's that's what this guy can do by sort of underplaying it, but still because he's cage, it has that electric element of you don't know mm-hmm. exactly where it's gonna go. So I guess that's a, a long way of saying is that overall I do think this movie finds a balance between the sort of cage that might not normally be in a movie like this, but is um, and it works. I think it works. Yeah, I was joking earlier about how I take every movie too seriously, but what you're describing is maybe potentially funny and funny in a way that maybe isn't fully intended or even if it's intended, takes you out of the moment. When he walks into those places and he looks like that or when he's at that table and he's bleeding and someone says that to him, I'm really not in that moment thinking about the humor of it. And I'm also not thinking about the casting of Cage. I wasn't here. I think that just reflects how much I was engrossed by this movie and by Cage's performance. I felt that that was just so tied to this character and his attitude and his single-minded focus. And maybe another actor in this role really couldn't have pulled that off. Maybe that is part of the genius of Cage, an actor I have always adored, even if I have not partaken Josh in too many of his his recent movies. I want to go back to the filmmaking a little bit though. There's another line in the movie that struck me as interesting, maybe one where Sarnowski the director and writer was winking at us a little bit where Cage is I think down in this basement, this cellar kind of going into this underground world. He's got Alex Wolf's character, Amir, who he's brought along through this process, his truffle-buying agent, if you will. Yeah, like his out. broker, yeah. Yeah, his broker who goes out and sells him to those restaurants. And he, of course, has his phone on just like any of us would in this scenario, and he's using it as a flashlight. And you can tell he's a little bit harried by the whole thing. And Cage is just, again, that guy, unfazed, his character unfazed by any of this. And he says to Amir something like, turn that thing off, your eyes will adjust. Yeah. And I feel like that was kind of Sarnowski's approach to the filmmaking, where it's like he's saying to us, you know what? A lot of these scenes are going to be dark, and I'm going to use these blurred perspectives at time. But if you don't fight it, and in fact, if you don't fight, again, I'll go back to the absurdity of it all. If you can kind of just suspend disbelief about every aspect of this world, and if you settle in, your eyes will adjust to it. 
you will yeah. adapt. And I, I certainly did. That makes me think the theater that I saw it in, I sat, you know, I'm still getting used to being back in theaters and, mm-hmm. and trying to remember where was my perfect seat. And I made the choice of sitting too close to an exit sign in this particular theater. And you are so right about the dark, the intended darkness of the mm-hmm. cinematography and most of the scenes, whether you're in the forest or in these basements, um, and I would really advise people to find the darkest theater they can and kind of like sit in the middle of it because it sort of bled into my line of vision and it made it harder sometimes to make out. Yeah. But if when you do adjust to it, yeah, it's some really beautiful camera work in this film. Yeah, I think I, that line too, Josh, real quick, it does fit so well with his character and the choices he makes and the overall message of the movie. This idea that, the things you think you need to be happy, to be successful, or really just to exist, to get by every day. If you tried to live without them, you'd probably find that you could. Again, you would you would adjust, you would adapt. So it's it's almost a throwaway line, or it could be, and yet it's a line that I feel so neatly sums up not only the larger themes of the movie, but really also kind of speaks to the approach to the filmmaking. So you mentioned this world that is built, this kind of like underground restaurant world. And that really is another connection to John Wick as mm-hmm. as much as the the basic driver of the plot, right? For because sure. we discover in the John Wick films, there's this whole other world with its own rules. And what I didn't understand, we'll dance around spoilers here, but you mentioned that Fight Club-ish sequence i think it's i think it's there thematically because it's another moment of violence Mm -hmm. and yet let's just say it's a moment where rob um makes a choice to not extend violence but but receive it um and i liked that especially which we have to get to dancing around it the climax i think of the film how it can how it connects to that but is there any reason what happens there had to happen for him to find his pig (laughs) Did I, did I miss? Like, I wrote was, that in my notes at one point. Actually, did any of these things, did any of the people he visits and what he learns actually need to happen? Or couldn't he have just kind of figured it all out on his own? <laughs> I mean, yeah, like sat down at a table, <laughs> took out a pad and pen and started writing names down and thinking right. about how. Yeah. OK, so maybe but, I, maybe it's just something I need to set aside. But I but, will. I will say I think you mostly need to set it aside, but I kind of did ultimately conclude that the revelations he gathers are crucial because he actually wouldn't have known ultimately where it would lead. Maybe I'll just, yeah, I'll just leave it there. He doesn't have the exact same sense of the world now that he, he well abandoned the way it is now and the rules, if you will, of it. Well, and again, thematically, it's more important because in each of the encounters, um, he either comes away slightly changed mm-hmm. um, or the person who he talks to. Right. Great scene with a um, a chef running a trendy restaurant now who used to work. Well, he, he had yeah. a previous connection with him, let's just say. Yeah. And that is one where that chef leaves completely. You get a sense changed, like altered his his view of what he is doing with his life altered from a short conversation with with Rob. So I think those encounters, maybe they don't have practical reasons, but they do have thematic reasons. Right. And it's another and, tie. It's another tie to John Wick, actually, in a way that he is like, and, and I really don't want to say any more than this, but the way we learn more about Cage's character here, what we learn about Robin, he becomes like the Baba Yaga. 
he is he is this <laughs> mythical presence, which again, yeah. I'll get back to the idea of like the overall absurdity of the movie. Yeah. Yet it is grounded in this earthiness, and there is something about it that is very straightforward, but the the world around it, it's just so so heightened that I think like the movie wants to suggest overall and, and what it says is that if you just kind of look at the everyday world in a completely new and different way, you will then be changed by it or you will you will encounter it differently and that will somehow have an effect on you, one that may allow you to actually move forward or have some kind of breakthrough, if you will. For me, you know, the the ultimate mark of distinction for this movie is the climax, which is, you know, going to be difficult to talk about without spoiling. And we're definitely not going to do that. I think we can say certainly considered reconsidered my top five movie meals list, which we did not too long ago because mm-hmm. it centers around a meal and it's it uses that in a way that I think we talked about how meals can be, what they can mean for characters and relationships. What I did like about it, again, is how this movie seems to be heading, unless you notice some of those clues we've already talked about, seems to be heading towards a towards a very John Wick conclusion, a, a conclusion you know, you've seen in a lot of revenge films. Um, and the turn it takes it was just lovely and surprising. Mm-hmm. And that is maybe the point where, for me, what the movie wanted to do and who cages as a performer, his essence were most in sync. They, they were most together. There mm-hmm. was still that little bit. There's that little bit of unpredictability because you don't know how that scene is ultimately going to go. And I think at that point you don't know because it's Nicolas Cage. So here is maybe where Sarnowski says, you know, okay, I'm going to risk all these other scenes might go a little a little awry because I've got Nicolas Cage here, but if we can nail this scene, it's really going to work because I have Nicolas Cage there. And again, can't say more in detail, but um, can't wait to talk to other people after they've seen it about that climactic scene. Yeah, I have more I want to say about it. And you know what, Josh, I'm just going to table it until maybe we get to the end of the year and a lot more people have seen this movie and, you know, it just might crack one or both of our Top 10 list. Pig is currently playing in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. So I'm pretty sure some pork is being eaten at the various snack and noodle shops in Chungking Express. Mm -hmm. Maybe best not to think about that. The third installment in our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon is next. Plus, results of the film spotting poll asking for your favorite movie about the Middle Ages. Stay with us. just turned six two weeks ago. Whatever's happening to us is happening very fast. You have wrinkles. I don't know, Josh. I already had a bad feeling about M. Night Shyamalan's old, and then there in that clip, maybe 10 seconds tops, we heard the word happening three Mm. times. Intentional? Is is he dropping that in there? He likes to play games. (laughs) His 2008 movie, let's just say, not among his best. The Happening. I would agree with that. Yeah, Okay. fair to say. But 
you caught up with old, the plot of old, as countless jokes and memes on social media have informed us, people find themselves on a beach that ages them rapidly. It's got a great cast, Gail Garcia Bernal, Vicky Kreps, Thomas and McKenzie, Rufus Sewell, and Alex Wolf, who we saw in Pig. You are, fair to say, Josh, a Shyamalan defender. You're such a big-time critic. You're on Metacritic. And you've got a score of 75. I don't know if you picked that or someone at Metacritic assigned it, but it puts you in the upper tier of reviews. Oh, wow. (laughs) Tell us, why are the Shyamalan haters wrong about this one? And should I reconsider my disdain for the trailer, apparently, and just give in? Should I succumb to Shyamalan? Your your visceral reaction to the trailer. No, you shouldn't, Adam. Stay away. Stay very far away. We are... It's interesting you bring up the happening. We're back in happening territory. I mean, this is, it's better, significantly better than the happening. Yeah, you liked it. But, (laughs) I liked it, yeah, but I've got to say, this is Shyamalan going, in in a way, I know he's gotten favorable reviews recently for stuff like Split and Glass, um, even The Visit, which we did on the show uh, when that came out, but these are all a little different than what he was doing when he made The Happening and The Sixth Sense and Signs and those films that I think he's mostly associated for. After The Happening, he kind of retreated. He made After Earth, Sci-Fi, Big Studio, and then the other films I mentioned. We are back to M. Night coming up with this high concept and just pushing it as high as he can, seemingly not asking ever if these choices are bad ideas, but just plowing ahead with them. And I think I realized, Adam... What old made me realize is I'm comfortable now being an M. Night Shyamalan defender in the sense that I have come to terms with how outrageous his movies are going to be and that I can still like them even as I am laughing at them as everyone else is. It's it's It doesn't have to be an either or thing. I would rather have him back in this territory pushing these boundaries uh, than um, doing things that are kind of, you know, maybe a little more middle of the road, but more accomplished that don't have those moments that people like to laugh at. And so this one, this one kind of hit a sweet spot for me. The acting really helps. I mean, it's again, back to the happening. I think when you have the dialogue being delivered there's still some iffy dialogue here, but by people like Bernal and Creeps, it's going to help. And it does help here. They're very good. They get a very touching moment near the end together as this couple that reminded me something else Shyamalan can do is really hit significant emotional beats in his films. And as they continue to age and they start to lose their sight, their hearing, uh, they start to lose parts of their memory. And their background is that they're on this trip because they were having trouble with their marriage and that starts to fade away. It's a really touching moment near the end. The other thing that he has here that I'm always going to be a sucker for is just his filmmaking. I mean, he is never going to give you a boring shot. The crazy ones might be too crazy, but then there are other ones that just work like gangbusters. And the reveal of the two children, the first time they significantly age, just the way he uses, you know, obscuring their bodies in the frame, but giving us a hint of how they're different. The sound design, their voices are different, and uh, we can kind of get a sense that something is off. We're not, even though we know the concept, not entirely clear. And then he swings the camera around for the for the reveal. There are so many bravura um, filmmaking choices here that really, really do work. So for someone like me, 
yes, go see old. <laughs> and I like to think, I feel like I've seen a lot of people who are kind of enjoying this and are, are saying similar things as like, we'd rather have M night Shyamalan doing this, especially in a world. I remember we talked about this when we reviewed glass, actually, especially in a world that's a wash in Marvel, you know, that, that was like a superhero riff, but it was all original. It was coming out of his head. And I want to have original, even if they're bonkers movies like this nowadays, we're getting less and less of them, especially from a filmmaker who doesn't know his limits, but also has a lot of talent. So I'm, I'm happy M night is back to doing this sort of stuff. So if you're like Josh, definitely see old. If you're like me and you think he maybe hasn't made a really good film since Signs, mm. then, Adam, then maybe pass. There, come on, there's there's revival going on. I've I've heard a lot of praise for the village in anticipation oh, I of know. old, which I'm I loved when it first came out. Not quite as much as praise for Lady in the Water, which I also liked, but but at least people have come around on the village. So eventually, eventually they'll get to Lady in the Water too. Old is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with Josh's take, email feedback at filmspotting.net. We have a giveaway this week on the show. Love to give away free stuff to our listeners. A Quiet Place Part 2 came to DVD and Blu-ray earlier this week. It's also available to rent on most platforms. And we have five of those Blu-ray editions to give away Emily Blunt, John Krasinski, of course, in A Quiet Place Part 2. For a chance at one of those five Blu-rays, all you have to do is send an email to feedback at filmspotting.net. The subject line should be Quiet Place. And in the body, tell us about your most memorable horror movie watching experience. Didn't we do, do you that? have one, Josh? We did that as a top five, I feel like. We had to have. Or did we just do most memorable theater or movie going experiences and maybe you had a horror one on your list that could be i can i can give you one right now though it was seen way too young um that would be a common theme to such a list if we did it or ever do it but mm -hmm. way too young friday the 13th while on vacation with a friend's family staying at like their relative's house so not even you know in a familiar place so scared i want to say i was maybe seven maybe eight so scared. I feel like I did tell this on the show. I went into the bedroom. This was the middle of the night of mm -hmm. my friend's aunt and uncle, people I had just met that day and woke them up because I needed to be comforted. I'm still not over it, clearly. <laughs> I love it. Of course, longtime listeners know the horror movie that still terrifies me to this day. Maybe the first one I ever watched was the Stephen King TV adaptation of Salem's Lot. And the scene, some some jerk, some jerk listener, Josh, just a few weeks ago on Twitter sent a link my way and was like, hey, Adam, or a quote tweet, you know, and said, hey, Adam, you might want to check this out. And you open it. And of course, it's like a still from the scene, the eyes, from Salem's lot, the eyes that terrify me. And I remember being out on the farm where my friend Chad lived watching Salem's lot, and he knew how much that scene terrified me. And so then he would go outside and he started going around to the window <laughs> saying, let me in. I'm your friend. And you know what I did? I locked him out of his own house. Smart move. I just left him out. It's like two in the morning. I don't know where his parents were. And I just left him outside for a while because I was so terrified. I was like, I didn't even want him to come in. And I was that mad at him. Again, A Quiet Place Part 2 is currently available to rent on most platforms. And the DVD and the Blu-ray are available for purchase. But you can win it. All you have to do, again, 
email us subject line quiet place and tell us about your most memorable horror movie watching experience next week here on film spotting we're going to review david lowry's long delayed much hyped the green knight dev patel stars alicia vikander and joel edgerton also in the cast it's a medieval set fantasy i'm guessing then josh whatever remains of 12 year old you probably loved it and you have seen it i don't know if you want to give us a tease well, for I, next week. I can say this. If I had seen The Green Knight at 10 or 12, yes, I would have loved it for all the sword and sorcery stuff. But it also has enough of a distinct filmmaking style to it that it might have been one of those cinephile transition movies where you mm. go from, oh, I'm a movie fan and I see a lot of films to, oh, this is what a movie can be. So yeah, this would have been prime, prime viewing for me at that age and obviously pretty fond of it now. Great. Well, I am looking forward to it even more. Also next week, we will have more Wong Kar Wai, 1995's Fallen Angels. It was originally conceived as a third part of Chungking Express and Wong instead decided to expand it into its own feature. We are making our way through this marathon, Josh. Every week, we're going to try to hit another Wong Kar Wai film. Also on next week's show, Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of our last massacre. I was listening to Anna's iPod the other day, and amidst the uh, interminable dross that's on that thing, I found one track that I quite liked. So I checked what it was, and it was actually one of yours. And it kind of reminded me of a dark, gothic Neil Diamond. that sounds familiar to you and you know what film it's from, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Deadline is Monday, August 2nd, and the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. We had a lot of people impressed with your accent work last week, Josh. Oh, I love to hear that. You too, also a huge fan of gothic Neil Diamond, <laughs> right? Of course. Who isn't? My favorite Neil <laughs> Diamond phase. <laughs> This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's a new pairing, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, with Terry Zweigoff's Crumb from 1994 about the underground comics artist R. Crumb. The Next Picture Show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. They post new episodes every Tuesday, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. More info is available at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support this show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. It's only five bucks a month, and here's what you get. Ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, live pre-sales and discounts, a merch discount, and here's the good stuff, the really good stuff, monthly bonus episodes, including the one we're going to record later. Tonight, Adam, we're kicking off our mini Bond series. I think we'll get to three, maybe four of these as part of the series from Russia with Love. 63, right? The the second Bond film? I think so. Definitely the second Bond film. Sean Connery, of course, as Bond. And, you know, maybe this will entice a few people to become family members and listen. This is one of those films from Russia with Love that most cinephiles or Bond aficionados rate as one of the best if not the best. And yet I saw your meager two and a half star star rating on Letterboxd earlier today. Chris Klemek, 
He of a lot of writing for various outlets as a freelancer. Of course, he of trivia spotting fame as well and guest appearances on this show. He's a Bond expert. He's going to join us. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to really refute a lot of whatever criticisms you have with From Russia With Love, but I'm hoping Chris Klemek will and some sparks will fly. Yeah, well, the the criticisms aren't that in-depth, but I did see that the uproar over me not rating it higher, even though I gave yeah. it the little heart, Adam. Gave it the little heart. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. yeah I didn't no even notice that. No one sees that. It's like, if it's not five stars, crucify him. I guess it was so such an affront we had to bring in a fan to defend from Rush yeah. With Love. So we'll see how that goes. It should be fun. We've had Chris on the show to talk Bond before. Mm-hmm. And as you said, he's he's been on Trivia Spotting a couple of times. We've got, we've got more Trivia Spotting coming up as part of the Film Spotting family on Patreon. August 20, mm-hmm. 7 p.m. Tickets are not on sale as of right now, but they That's should right. be soon. So this is available First again. week of August. First week of August, those tickets will be available to family members over on Patreon. So if you want to get back to Trivia Spotting, if you've played a couple of times or you want to try it out for the first time, that's our next date. If we want to take a break from our mini Bond Marathon bonus content, I've got an idea. Devote a whole show to my argument that you can't put the little heart next to any movie you give two and a half stars. Do you think we can do you think we can get 30 minutes out of that, Josh? Oh, but that's where you got to. Yeah. Oh, let's do it right now. That's where you got to <laughs> lay your cards on the table. There's nothing uh-huh. wimpier than a two and a half. Like, uh, maybe it's uh, it's just two and a half. If you give, it, the give hi- it if you give it the give heart, it three stars, like, listen. you gave it the heart. You got to give it three stars. No. And end scene. Three stars is uh, three stars is obvious. The heart is kind of like, yeah, I, I mm. liked it, but there are some issues here. Okay. What do we do? If 30 you, seconds? <laughs> if you would like to hear scintillating debates like that, <laughs> become a family member. Patreon.com slash film spotting. The lady of the lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power. That's, of course, Michael Palin and Graham Chapman in 1975's Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which brings us to some poll results. A couple of weeks back, in anticipation of The Green Knight, we asked you, what is the best movie set in the Middle Ages? We probably should have asked you, what is the best sword movie? We did that top five at one point in film spotting history. I think you missed that one. Sword we'll movies? Have to, yeah, we'll have to bring that out. I'm pretty sure we did how, top five sword movies. How was that done without me? That, that's I don't totally know. something I would suggest. I know. And I think we'll have to dust it off so you can provide your very learned perspective <laughs> on the topic. So what is the best movie set in the Middle Ages? The burning questions we're answering here on film spotting. Actually, our listeners are answering. We gave you these options. 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood, Mel Gibson's Best Picture winning Braveheart, John Borman's Excalibur. You could go Holy Grail. You could go real cinephile. 1928's The Passion of Joan of Arc. Maybe only slightly less cinephile. Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Or if you hated those options, you could go other. Josh had it to come out. 
other was in last place with 6% of the vote. And then these two both received 7% of the vote, Adventures of Robin Hood and Borman's Excalibur. A little jump up here with 11% went to Braveheart. And then kind of whiplash here. We've got 13% for The Passion of Joan of Arc, 20% for The Seventh Seal. So we've got the art house classics mm-hmm. and then take a completely different direction for the win, 35%. To Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Kevin Butler says a few years ago, I would have said Excalibur. I mean, I actually saw it in the theater like three or four times. A few years ago, though, I sat down to rewatch it with my wife who had never seen it. A few minutes in, we both looked at each other and said, it's not how I remembered it at all. I oh. guess some things are best left to memories, Kevin says. Sorry to hear that, Kevin. I think it holds up. Here's Justin Zimmerman. Obviously, not enough people have seen The Adventures of Robin Hood, also known as the most fun movie of all time and no joke, one of the greatest ever. I'm guessing Excalibur holds up about the same way M. Night Shyamalan's old will in 30 years, Josh, or 40 years. I mean, I'm trying to wrap my mind around that insult. <laughs> It's there's a wrap lot your wrap your mind there's around a lot it. of I'll just say this. There is a lot of Excalibur in the Green Knight. So, OK, if someone is paying artful homage to old in 30 years, mm. we'll all be lucky. OK, Duncan and Royal Oaks, Michigan says a survey question after my own heart. I have a bit of background in medieval history, and I've always enjoyed a good film set in the era. This is a good list, though I ultimately decided to go with other in the form of 1986's The Name of the Rose. We knew that one would come up. Director Jean-Jacques Gannot sets a gloomy and occasionally grotesque atmosphere in a 14th century monastery filled with dark passageways and scurrying monks who sometimes look more like demons themselves. It's all very fitting for an era often referred to as the Dark Ages, though of course Sean Connery brings a ray of perhaps anachronism light to this world as he attempts to solve a murder mystery with the help of his assistant, played by a very young Christian Slater. Part Agatha Christie mystery, part medieval adventure, with just a dash of horror in the ever-foreboding production design? What's not to love, Duncan asks. Yeah, good pick. I did love that film when it came out. All right, here is, oh boy, Tveit Irgens. I apologize. Well Tveet, done. If I mean, I it's have probably wrong. Wrong. But <laughs> a for effort. Okay, thank you. My pick is 1966, A Man for All Seasons. It depicts a corrupt society in which we get close to a truly uncorrupted official. An example for all of us. You were speaking recently of movies having gone from depicting societal problems to movies giving us hope, beach scenes, and Planet of the Apes. But new, hope-inspiring movies are empty promises with no solutions. A Man for All Seasons gives us both. A depiction of the troubles of the world and its hopeful solution. Back to back embarrassing blind spots for me. Handy Barker writes in and says, I've never been more prepared for one of your poll questions in my life. With an advanced degree in rhetoric from the preeminent classics and medieval studies department in America, as well as having just finished two of Dr. Dorsey Armstrong's wonderful courses on Audible exploring King Arthur in the Middle Ages, I'm ready. Had your question asked for the best film set in the Middle Ages, we'd all be fools not to tick Joan of Arc or Bergman. Both films I've returned to for 40 years as straight edges to rebalance my soul. But you use the word movie, and there is no other movie anywhere that caused more kids to memorize and reperform its brilliant satire than Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the work of Cambridge-slash-Oxford scholars who clearly did the medieval studies reading before writing the script. We have no assurance that John Borman published key books on Chaucer, the Middle Ages, or the Crusades, but Terry Jones, the director of Monty Python, did. Oh, wow. So see, that's why it was the perfect film spotting pick to win the poll. You've got the academics and you've got the comedy. Yep. I love it. Andy Mitchell, former PA for the show, weighing in here. 
I want to be disappointed at the film Spotting Family for not putting The Passion of Joan of Arc, truly one of the best films ever made, if not the best film ever made, as the runaway winner of this poll. But then what's in the lead? Monty Python and the Holy Grail? LOL, you got me family, you got me good. They are both five-star movies on my Letterboxd page. There you have it. Thanks to everyone who voted in the poll and who left comments. It's time for a new poll. In a couple of weeks, we will probably still be processing Annette, Leos Carrick's new musical starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard with music from the band Sparks. It opens in theaters on August 6th, and then it's going to come to Amazon Prime on the 20th. The reviews coming out of Cannes, where it premiered, were mixed. There were some very positive ones and some that were a little bit more skeptical. The inarguable good news is that we are getting a new performance from Adam Driver. We haven't seen him on screen since that sublime shoulder shrug in The Rise of Skywalker. It's been too long, Josh. Can I just add to those mixed responses, Adam, if anything I've said today on this show has not made sense, maybe maybe how I, I rate things on Letterboxd, perhaps, it's because I just came out of a net a couple of hours ago. Really? I still don't know what I saw. So I, I'm a, a bit <laughs> bewildered, a bit, okay. sh- a bit shaken, shall we mm. say. So that's my excuse. Either the perfect movie for us to discuss or... We should just go ahead and quietly pick something else to talk about. (laughs) Oh, no. We need to talk. Okay. We're going to go with a pretty simple and straightforward poll question this week, then, inspired by Annette and Adam Driver. Sam had another option that was interesting, no doubt, but I actually think the more straightforward one in this case is maybe the more compelling and difficult. We will see how the voting goes, Josh. We're asking simply or not so simply. What is your favorite, favorite Adam Driver performance? And did you say, did you say favorite? Because we're not asking best. We might as well clarify that now. That's right. Or are we leaving this up to listeners? Yeah. Okay. You go with what you want. You go with your heart, but the wording is favorite. Favorite. Okay. Here are our options. Flip Zimmerman, that's from Spike Lee's Black Klansman. He got a Supporting Actor nomination there. Charlie from Noah Baumbach's A Marriage Story, that one, snagged him a Best Actor nomination. Patterson, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, Kylo Ren from Star Wars, and Francisco Garupe in Scorsese's Silence will also have the other category as an option for you. So here's where I think the favorite versus best comes into play. It always comes into play, but it's especially a factor if you are actually considering other, because you could go with a performance like Lev in Francis Ha or Al Cody in Inside Lewin Davis. But I think those are so clearly supporting performances that to rate them as driver's best seems a little silly to me. Mm. But if you said, you know what, my favorite Adam Driver moments in all of cinema are him singing as Al Cody in Inside Lewin Davis or something he does opposite Greta Gerwig and Francis Ha, I couldn't begrudge anyone going with that, Josh. No, I've got it easy this time because I think my favorite and I would also say his best for me is probably Patterson. I I just, the, the notes he is hitting there And maybe part of it, I haven't seen it since, but he was still felt kind of fresh. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the great thing about him. He always seems fresh. He's got a little, you know, there's a little unpredictability like Nicolas Cage to him. But I just remember seeing him in Patterson and thinking it was just exquisite what he was doing there. So I think I'm probably going to go that way. Okay. I know this was tough for Sam to put Officer Ronnie from The Dead Don't Die in the other category. 
He didn't want to have two Jarmish choices there in the main options. And that's fair, even though it must have been difficult for him because he adores that Jarmish film as he does, I think, really every Jarmish film. That's another one I love as well. And I love him as Jamie. You know, I love While We're Young, that other Noah Baumbach film. Again, two films from the same director. We put it into the other category. For me, it comes down to Patterson or A Marriage Story. And I know A Marriage Story is probably the more obvious choice, the more conventional wisdom choice. It probably is, in fact, the choice that will win more recent and got that Best Actor nomination. A lot of us felt like it should have got that Best Actor win. I'm going to go with Charlie from A Marriage Story, but... Patterson's a great choice, Josh. All right. You can vote in that poll and leave us a comment at filmspotting.net. We get back into our world of Wong Kar Wai marathon with that clip from 1994's Chungking Express, the Hong Kong auteur's third film, following 1988's As Tears Go By and 1990's Days of Being Wild. This marathon is inspired by Wong's recent restoration of seven of his best-known films. They're all included in the Criterion Collection's new World of Wong Kar Wai box set. They're also currently streaming. As of right now, I guess we'll see what happens as we get into August, but as of right now, they are streaming on the Criterion channel. Between 1990's Days of Being Wild and 94's Chungking Express, Wong filmed the period wuxia epic Ashes of Time. During a two-month break in the editing of that film, which was also released in 94, Wong wrote and directed Express. Now, I will quickly throw in Josh, even though we only got chastised by one listener, longtime listener Josh Youngerman, for saying it. You could question the accuracy of calling Chungking Express a 1994 film because... I don't think it was released in the U.S., which is often what we go by here on Film Spotting until 96. But the movie definitely takes place in the world of 1994. That's referenced and was released in Hong Kong in 94. It's a two-part story about a pair of lovesick Hong Kong police officers. It became the film that introduced Wong to many in the West, thanks in some part to Quentin Tarantino, who championed the film and started a distribution company in order to get the movie released in the States. It went on to become one of the most acclaimed and beloved films of the decade. Our friends and current Next Picture Show hosts, Scott Tobias and Tasha Robinson and Keith Phipps, when they were at the AV Club in 2012, they rated Chungking Express as the number five film of the 90s. And... They know what they're talking about. They had it right between Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight and Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. We talked about during our last Wong discussion, Josh, how Days of Being Wild ends rather abruptly, just kind of ditches the characters we've spent the entire film with and introduces us to a new one played by the great Tony Leung. And here he is back as one of the heartsick cops. The other is played by Takeshi Kaneshiro. He encounters Bridget Lin, a mysterious woman in the blonde wig who is mixed up in the Hong Kong drug world. Leung, meanwhile, develops a very interesting relationship with Fei Wong's Fei, who works at a Hong Kong snack bar and who really, really likes the song California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas. Loud. She likes it loud. Yes, she does. You last watched Chunking Express about a decade ago when we did our top five films of 1994. You liked it enough then 
to name it your number four movie of that year. Upon this revisit, seeing it a little bit more in context, having watched and discussed his first two films, did you have any different reaction to it? Would you actually rate it higher, possibly? Can we just go back? Did you just say a decade ago? Have I have I really been doing this with you for almost ten years? Yeah, we're <laughs> we're approaching insane. we're approaching ten. Holy cow! Okay, um, back to your question at hand. I think I, of course, probably like this a little bit more. I don't know if I'd move those rankings around, but how could you not? appreciate something as textured as this um, even more when you get a chance to kind of just live and breathe and sit in those textures some more and you're not paying as much attention. You know that these stories aren't necessarily going to be wrapped up um, or even followed through to their logical end. So that sort of narrative attention I've let go of and I can just sit in um, everything else going on in this movie. And I think that's what Wong wants to do. I, I don't think, you know, he's attached to these characters as much as he's attached to their moods Mm -hmm. and he's attached to the cinematic ways he's going to be able to express their moods. And that isn't to say he creates thin characters. I think probably the opposite. These are the sort of characters people probably carry with them and think about years later because it has that factor. I I wonder whatever happened to the woman in the blonde wig. Where is she, you know, or, or where is she now, or, or or any of these who we don't get to see the resolution? Uh, I think that's a plus in his filmmaking. Uh, in terms of the context of this marathon, you know, this seems to be where whatever thing he does has been distilled into its purest form by his third film. Um, we talked about as tears go by as being, you know, a genre piece with definite signature idiosyncratic touches. And then for me, days of being wild was very exciting, but maybe a little more unsure of itself simply because it was more experimental trying to get at whatever this thing is Mm -hmm. that Wong does. Um, and a, a great movie that I loved, but you could, there was a little bit of, um, maybe uncertainty here, complete control knows what it wants to do, where it wants to be, how it wants to present these characters, what it wants to do with colors, with music, um, with the cinematography and how motion is captured. And it's just pure. This is, you know, we'll we'll talk about it at the end of this marathon. It may not be the best Wong Kar Wai film. People feel it is. Um, but maybe at, at the end of the day, it will be his purest, the most distilled essence of what he does. Hmm. You're right in how you describe these characters because – There is something, it's not that they're thin, but there is something about them and the way Wong depicts them where it is more about their moods. It is more about how they're defined by their yearning, which is something that's very hard to grasp and something that's very hard to even really kind of articulate. And yet it's something extremely relatable to any human being. And yet there is something also that's specific enough about each one of these characters and distinct from each other that makes them still interesting and real and not make them feel, as you said, that they are thin. But the filmmaking here, too, and this evolution that we've seen just over the course of these films is to the point where I'm looking at the jukebox that we cut to, I think, a couple times in a bar and... Even the CDs that are that are just kind of models that are spinning in this dated jukebox, those are gorgeous in the world yeah. of Wong Kar Wai. The yep. kaleidoscopic colors twirling, which then matches how the camera often twirls 
around the characters, especially in this film, but in the other films we've talked about as well. And there is this experimentation and perhaps an evolution with his depiction of men in these films. We'll talk about that here probably in a second, but also with color. That was something that really fascinated me here. We talked a lot about the color red in As Tears Go By. That was really the dominant color. And then we go to Days of Being Wild, and it's all about that green. And then Chunking Express, for me, was all about the blue. The blue that comes hmm. through in the lights of the the stand, the snack bar stand, the police uniform, that vivid blue, even the aquarium light in Tony Leung's apartment. And there are countless other examples of blue appearing in this movie. And it just encompasses all of the the kind of central conflicts and contradictions of his films and his characters. Like blue at once is a little bit icy and it's a little bit cold and a little bit distant the same way these characters are distant from each other, despite sometimes how close in proximity they are. And yet there's also something about blue as we see it here. That's also kind of comfortable. Of course, there's also all of the neon lights and some of the different effects that we have come to expect of Wong Kar Wai even now through three films. But honestly, the the use of the color blue, having seen how much he really utilized one particular color in the previous two films was what stood out to me the most. Yeah, all of these aesthetic choices come back to me, whether it is the color choice, what you're going to emphasize, um, or you know the use of those discs, they all do connect back to this idea of mood for the characters for me. And so then what happens if you're attuned to that and you realize, you know, we're not going to learn about these characters because we're going to get their full story, but we're going to get that neon Coca-Cola sign behind them or McDonald's. I mean, how about the product placement here? That isn't really product placement. That's just what this, this neighborhood looks like, Mm -hmm. but those signs are given and filmed and framed uh, just like with adoration and they're throbbing. So these colors and these neon hues are just throbbing, which matches the yearning of each of these characters in different ways. Mm-hmm. And then you look at something like this camera work, which I, I've said before, it's like it's smeared. You know, here it almost looked like certain sequences are like it's a painting mm-hmm. that is in the actual process of being animated. So it's like you're watching it come alive and it's moving slowly. But then how about that one shot where uh, I think it's Leung is in the foreground completely in focus, kind of in, um, you know, normal speed. And behind him is that almost a fast motion smearing. Mm-hmm. And what does that do? Well, you're seeing someone who's there. The world is passing them by and they're stuck there. They're remaining morose because that's that's the mood right now um, of that character. And even something like, you know, this one is addressed in the film, water dripping from a towel. Um, Leung's cop describes it as tears the towel is crying mm-hmm. right and so that is that's kind of like underlying how every frame of this movie seems to work is that it it is crying or this frame is sighing um or this frame is yearning we get we can go all the way back to Faye playing california dreaming blaringly loud well why does she do that I love the touch how she does it because it means when Leong needs to talk to her, they have to get close, mm. the, the push in as they lean into each other. But the other reason she does 
that is because that's how intensely she feels the entire world is that loud. That's how she feels the music, that aesthetic element is going to serve that emotional Mm -hmm. purpose too. And so it's just thrilling to watch all the different ways um, Wong and his team are going to use these elements to do that sort of emotional expression. And all that's true, everything you just said about Faye and that song, but it's also a case where I think she's using it as a sort of defense mechanism, right? It's kind of a barricade. She she feels so intensely that she uses that song to sort of shield her and be this this wall that allows her to not project just how strongly she feels about him. You know, it's like she's sure. elusive. She's elusive and and oh, she can stay in her own world yeah, too. Yeah, she'll she'll lean in and hear what you have to say, but you know, if you don't talk loud enough, well, that's that's your fault, you know, and she's going to keep the music exactly how it is. She's an individual in that way. The evolution I mentioned in terms of the male characters too is something so fascinating here. I wonder if you had a similar reaction. We were joking last time about two main men so far from As Tears Go By and Days of Being Wild who are not the kind you would want any woman to get into a relationship with or you would warn them against. They're they're rough men, they're domineering men. They are not without all vulnerability. That definitely comes through. But here it's almost like Wong decided to go in a completely different direction to subvert the template that he had created or that a lot of these crime films and these genre films that he is inspired by utilize because he's got men here, these two police officers who are so sensitive, they they'll eat 30 cans of pineapple as a (laughs) gesture of their romantic longing, even though the woman that they're pining over really at this point, it's clear, has completely moved on and, of course, has no idea that they're doing this. Or they will talk to their bath towels, the (laughs) dripping bath towels. And both of them talk about tears more than once. The first cop, his passcode when he checks his messages is undying love. Yes. You would not not catch either of the other characters we've talked about so far, the male protagonists of Days of Being Wild and As Tears Go By using undying love, right, as their their passcode. And I'll also go back and just throw out maybe one of the best movie entrances ever is that shot of Tony Leung when mm. he walks up for the first time to the snack bar. The yeah. way that's framed, the way that blue police suit is so vibrant and in that close-up, and he's looking right, it seems, at the camera. And you're watching, of course, one of the most interesting handsome faces in all of cinema you do in that moment become i think just as enraptured by him as fei wong does sure i mean you're right that this this is a completely different expression of masculinity that we're getting from these two compared to the other men in the earlier films Um, but you also have the through lines of the uniform (laughs) you know we, we see another uniform here and um you are still getting what you did in the earlier films is an accentuation of their physical beauty as men. I mean, that Mm -hmm. is at the forefront as much as that attention is paid to the female characters as well. It's very egalitarian that way, the filmmaking. And what's nice about that is, you know, you kind of feel like the, the fear of objectification falling away 
and appreciation taking its place. Um, when the camera is just going to kind of fall in love with everyone mm -hmm. this way, which I think it does. Now, at the same time, I, it's not uncritical. I don't think these movies are uncritical. Like Kenishiro, the first um, cop we meet, you know, as you said, he doesn't seem to have a clue <laughs> as to, you know, what the reality of the situation was. And you almost feel too, like he's putting on a show. Like he, th this is his sensitivity is something he's performing a little yeah. bit. The great scene of him and Bridget Lynn as the woman in the blonde wig, where they run into each other at a bar just before closing time, end of the, of a crazy night for both of them. And more out of exhaustion than anything else, they kind of lean on each other. That is only after like a couple of minutes more of his bravado as this sensitive man, you know, and it, it's not until kind of like he starts dropping that mm -hmm. you get a sense that she then lets her head rest on him um, and gives us another like indelible image from this movie of the two of them just um, completely capturing a mood. You talked mm -hmm. about, uh, was it? Uh, Edward Hopper paintings. Did that come up mm -hmm. in? Yeah, in, last in, week, uh, I think. Last week, yeah, yeah. And how about that sequence of those two at the bar as an mm -hmm. Edward Hopper painting as well? It strikes me as you talk about those characters how funny it is that Bridget Lynn's character, the blonde woman in the wig, is like a character out of a movie. As sure. if she's been transplanted from another film into this world. But she herself isn't inherently dramatic what i mean is she's not she's not acting she's not performing she's just doing whatever she has to do but you're right the first police officer is very showy in making all these symbolic gestures and is performative always similar to to fei wong's character right in a way that's very much the opposite of tony leung who's not not showy or performative really at all other than these quiet moments alone with his towels where he has yeah. these these little <laughs> and the stuffed animals these little dialogues right and the stuffed animals exactly but i'm curious how you feel overall i mean it sounds like we both have a ton of appreciation for this film but how do you feel about that split as much as you can't imagine this film being different, seeing it or or considering it without that symmetry between the two parts and the two pairs of characters, there is a little bit of a sense, at least there was for me this time watching it, that it feels like two different movies still in a lot of ways too. The, the first 40 minutes gives way to Tony Leung's character and Faye Wong's character, and I found myself wondering if I actually might've somehow enjoyed it even more if we had just gotten the movie that was those two characters, mm. did we need it in Amy Taubin's criterion collection essay? She says, and of course this is all by way of praising the movie. She has a great line. She says, it's as if the film itself is looking for love in the same way that it's characters are by trial and error. <laughs> and it, it's sort of like it decides at some point, you know what? I, I'm going to move on to this yeah. this different path of of romantic longing, and I'm going to put aside those crime elements, the the kind of gangster movie elements that I have otherwise used up to this point. Yeah, because it's interesting. It it literally begins with more of those crime elements mm -hmm. with the Bridget Lynn character, right, and then kind of moves on from those. So, you know, I I would like to say as I did at the top is I've kind of come to expect this from Wong's films and am appreciating more how it's not about the characters' narratives as much as it is about their experiences and the moments we're with them and how they feel. And that is all true. I will reiterate that. But 
I do wonder, and I can't wait to get to In the Mood for Love. Mm -hmm. It's been a while since I've seen it. My memory of it is that it is more of a cohesive narrative. Um, Not that it has, I, I do remember how it ends, and you would not call that a traditional resolution. But overall, we are following a cohesive narrative more than we are here, I believe. And I do wonder why right now I would say that is my favorite of his, because it's not as radical as this. And, and maybe if you know, if you're the real auteurist, Chunking Express is the one you want to claim because it is the most distinct in this way. It is committing to this idea mm-hmm. of the characters stories from A to Z is not as important as getting exactly right where they were right around F. You know, let's just get at, let's just nail F where they were in that story, that exact moment and that mood. So that's what we carry with us after the movie is over. And it doesn't really matter if we ever find out what what mm-hmm. was Z. Um, so I think that's why I love this movie so much. But we'll see if I like In the Mood for Love for more. Maybe I want traditional narrative more than I like to admit. Yeah, my daughter, Sophie, who's 17 and has been watching all of these movies with me and almost every movie I watch these days, she texted me and said, I love his no plot. This is really what you said, Josh, about mood, but in the vernacular of a 17-year-old, I love his no plot, just vibes approach to filmmaking. And I think that that actually sums it up nicely. And unfortunately, we had to watch the movie separately from each other. And when I finished it, which was after her, I texted her and I said, that is such a Sophie movie. (laughs) And, and she wrote back and said, that's literally exactly what her brother Holden said. She showed him the description and he said that he didn't think he could write a more you sounding movie than that. And she's like, yeah, straight up facts. I loved it. I think she gave it four and a half stars on letterbox, but was thinking about giving it five stars. And I'm really, I guess, just saying all of this to point out that, you know what? Teenagers, they can definitely relate to these characters. Oh, and no doubt. They can, yeah. they can be astounded by the filmmaking, too, but they certainly can go along with the vibe of a movie like Chunking Express. Sophie certainly did. So, obviously, her favorite of the three so far. Yes. And All mine right. as well. Makes sense. Yeah, I think I'd probably, I'd probably go there, too. Chunking Express is currently available on the Criterion channel, as are all of the titles, at least for now, in the world of Wong Kar Wai Marathon. Next up, we will talk about Fallen Angels. More information about this marathon and all of our past marathons is available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the new Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what's your favorite Adam Driver performance? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend. Jungle Cruise, starring Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt. In limited release, there is Nine Days. A reclusive man conducts a series of interviews with human souls for a chance to be born. Yes, that's the plot description. Winston Duke, Zazie Beetz, star RogerEbert.com's Brian Tallarico is a fan of the movie, saw it when it premiered at Sundance. In fact, I think Brian Tallarico is name-checked in the trailer, one of the critics' comments for Nine Days. I saw it before Pig. Oh, this is... 
Yeah, that's where I saw it too. This is funny. And guess who was in my pig screening? With I'm gonna me. say Brian Tallarica. Brian Tallarica. So he was he was like maybe ten rows ahead of me. Yeah, sitting there, and then his name comes up on the screen. I was like, well, how about that? Did everyone in the theater say huzzah or anything? Yeah, exactly what happened. Okay, good. Stillwater is also out. Matt Damon stars as an oil rig roughneck from Oklahoma who travels to France to visit his estranged daughter, played by Abigail Breslin. She's in prison for a murder she claims she didn't commit. Tom McCarthy directed that. So far, mixed reviews. The Green Knight is out. David Lowry directing Dev Patel there. That is the film we will talk about as our main review next week here on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogard. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.